0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day. We thank you for being able to be here at this yearly spiritual feast in the Michigan Conference. We pray that you would bless every speaker today and every presenter and every attendee, especially, Lord, be with the children, the young people. And Lord, we pray that you would exercise your sovereign power and protect this campground from any dangerous storms or any other mishaps. We ask you to be with us here in this room and bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're talking about the Reformation, in a sense commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. (coughs) And yesterday we were talking about the times, what the times were like. In fifteen seventeen, five hundred years ago, we were talking about that it was an age of inventions, telescope, gunpowder. A spirit of doubt began to prevail. People began to question things, spiritual as well as physical. And I mentioned that one of the major events that occurred in 1456 was when John Gutenberg invented movable type and printed the first Bible, (coughs) excuse me, in Latin, and people for the first time, the very first time, it's hard to believe today, where we have so many different translations of the Bible in many, many different languages, it's hard to believe that in the early 1500s, the average individual church member didn't have access to the Bible. All he had to go by was what the priests said and what they were taught from the Catholic catechism. And so when the first Bibles were printed, In the vernacular, that was a major event in human history. So a new age was dawning, and it had a powerful intellectual and spiritual impact on life. The Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, was a time of great upheaval. And as a matter of fact, unknown the world had gone through the time depicted in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, recorded in Daniel, the book of Daniel, as the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, as Daniel writes, all together were broken in pieces. That means disintegration. And after the legs of iron, which symbolized the Roman Empire, after the legs of iron had fallen and there was disorder and fragmentation all through Europe, centuries of confusion and a painful search for stability followed after the fall of the Roman Empire and later the Emperor Charlemagne had set up a new empire on the Roman model. And his greatest conquest was against the Saxon tribes of Germany. And Charlemagne's greatest purpose was to destroy Christianity, destroy it, eliminate it. And so many very harsh laws were passed against people who refused to be baptized, who refused to baptize their children. And by that time, and this is important to remember, the Roman Catholic Church was the primary enforcer of laws like that. But Charlemagne's attempt to destroy Christianity finally failed. And a new system emerged that was called feudalism. And by the 11th century, New political kingdoms began to appear on the scene. Nations were born. During the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, tribes, largely identified by language, began to unite as nation-states such as Germany, and France, and England, and Italy, and Spain. And along with this, the largely agrarian economy, as we mentioned yesterday, this was way before the Industrial Revolution. There was no industry, there was no trains things like that no factories people lived off the land most people were farmers or or lumberjacks or things like that but that agrarian economy gave way to trade and that promoted the increase of the development of towns and cities and money became the medium of exchange. And as far as most of the people were concerned, that is to say the peasantry, life was very hard. And most of them did not own the land that they lived on. And famines were common. Men and women worked long hours in the fields. They lived in small cottages with mud walls and thatched roofs they burned a fire in the middle of the of the floor in order to heat and cook and the smoke went up through a hole in the roof that's the way they lived windows had no glass like these and in, in the wintertime, they, they would stuff bales of straw into the opening of the window. Their furniture was meager. Usually, the, the beds that they slept on were, were nothing more than a pile of straw. Sometimes it was big enough for the whole family to use. And sanitation was non-existent. Streets were filled with garbage and animal manure and sometimes even human. And none of them were clean by the standards that we have today. The streets. Food was scarce. Their diet was mostly things like porridge, cheese, soups, and pork and life expectancy was very short and infant mortality rate was very high. A lot of children died in infancy or in their early years from starvation or disease. And so the idea began to prevail that peasants are to spend their lives working for the nobility Some of the nobility were kind to them but many were merciless. They were like slaves. And in Germany, for example, there was an awful lot of discontent, class hatred and undercurrents of revolt. Luther came out of that milieu. He was born a peasant on a farm. His father, whose name was Hans, grew up on a farm and later became a miner. He was a rugged, rough, but a very devout man, a member of the Roman church, faithful. But old German paganism, was blended with their beliefs. And they believed that elves, fairies, witches were everywhere. Evil spirits were the cause of storms and floods and pestilence and sickness, they believed. It was a very superstitious age. Can you see why? The people were enchanted by the teachings of the medieval church with that kind of a su- superstitious approach to religion. One day in July in the year 1505, young Luther, he wasn't even 20 years old, I don't think, by that time, he was walking along the road when suddenly the sky the sky darkened and he was stunned by a, a crashing storm that suddenly descended and he was struck down by a bolt of lightning didn't hit him but it hit the ground nearby and he was he fell and he cried out saint anne if you help me i'll become a monk so here the the man who called on a saint quote unquote would later repudiate the idea and the man who became a monk would reject monasticism that loyal son of the roman church would later shatter it, shatter its very structure, even identifying the popes with the Antichrist. And as far as most people were concerned at that time in history, in Europe, the church was the only stabilizing force in that chaotic society, in that Great time of upheaval and change and so the church eventually became the absolute judge of human destiny you understand what was happening but the church had become corrupt how did that happen between the time of the Apostles and the early church, and that of the Middle or Dark Ages. How did that happen? The Apostle Paul, for example, had written his epistles around the year 60 A.D., and now they were in 1517. How did that that happen? How did the church become corrupt? Ellen White, I think, has... Nobody has summarized it better than Ellen White. <clears throat> In her book, Great Controversy, pages 49 and 50, when she says... And I'm, I've always been struck by her choice of words. She says, almost imperceptibly... the customs of heathenism found their way into the Christian church. The spirit of compromise and conformity was restrained for a time by the fierce persecution which the church endured under paganism. But as persecutions ceased, and Christianity entered the courts and palaces of kings, the church laid aside the humble simplicity of Christ and his apostles for the pomp and pride of pagan priests and rulers, and in place of the requirements of God, she substituted human theories and traditions. The nominal conversion of Emperor Constantine caused great rejoicing, and the world, cloaked with a form of righteousness, walked into the church. Now the work of corruption rapidly progressed. Paganism, while appearing to be vanquished, became the conqueror, the conqueror of the church. The spirit of paganism controlled the church. Her doctrines, ceremonies, and superstitions were incorporated into the faith and the worship of the professed followers of Christ. Nobody has summarized it better than Ellen White. Now, this is the critical question. What was it that had to be compromised in order to do all this that she described? People had to be kept in ignorance of the scriptures. It was deliberate. It was planned by the medieval church. And that's why the printing of Bibles by Gutenberg was such a momentous event. Ellen White says, The Bible would exalt God and place finite men in their true position. Therefore, its sacred truths must be concealed and suppressed. The authority of the revealed Word of God for the faith and life of believers was gradually replaced by the authority of the Roman church. It took some time, yes, but gradually, over the centuries, in the context of that time that we have been describing, that's what happened. And that authority of the church vested in their structure, in popes, bishops, priests, and in the rituals, that is to say, the sacraments, that authority was absolute. By the way, in the Catholic system, there are seven sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, marriage, ordination, extreme unction for the sick, the dying. There's a couple more, I can't, can't think of them. And by the way, it was fascinating for me in my progression from Lutheranism into Adventism when I became aware that in the, in the context of this history, the high priestly ministry of Christ. He has been in heaven since his ascension, functioning as high priest. But during all that time, the high priestly ministry of Jesus was transferred by the church to the altar in the church and the function of the priest who, when he said the Mass, every Sunday, and lifted up the host, the bread. He had the authority based on his ordination, which was a sacrament, to actually change the bread and the wine into the real blood and, and flesh of Jesus. You see that, how the high priestly ministry of Jesus was transferred to the altar of the church and the function of the priest. The church had reached the position where it claimed to be the only repository of the true faith. And that was very impressive in the midst of that superstitious approach to religion that most people had in those days it fit right in and so the bible in the hands of the priesthood was suppressed when it came to the people they didn't want them to know what the bible taught and the role of the priest was decisive for salvation the, the salvation was not attainable apart from the mediation of the local priest. It was the priest that the sinner had to go to to confess and receive absolution of sin. Is that still going on? And the Bishop of Rome had become the central figure of religious authority. I remember when I was teaching at our seminary in the Philippines, Pope John Paul made a visit to Manila. And I heard over the radio, when he was introduced by the, uh, I think it was the archbishop or the, of the church in the Philippines, the archbishop referred to him as the son of God on earth. The pope had become more powerful than any secular ruler in Europe. And for the ordinary person, that was awesome. That was awesome. So it was a time of great spiritual darkness and the church which God had designed to shine the light of His truth in the darkness, instead had made the darkness even darker. Remember that a money economy had emerged and the finances of the church became involved in that medium of exchange. But the papacy went bankrupt. Money had to be raised. How could such funds be generated? That was the dilemma. How could could this money be gotten from the local churches and the faithful members? Remember, it was a time of great superstition. So the church came up with the idea of indulgences and it was a brilliant idea under the circumstances because it played on the superstitions and the fears of the people of the time there was nothing wrong with the cause you know the church needed money for hospitals for church buildings to pay the priesthood and The Pope wanted to build a a magnificent cathedral in the city of Rome. St. Peter's, it's called. It's still there. That's where the Pope is consecrated. If you ever go to Rome, it's fascinating to visit. But this method, the use of indulgences, it was diabolical the idea was that Christ and all of the saints quote unquote had more merits than they needed and so the surplus merits that Jesus and all of the saints were kept in a treasury by God and could be transferred to sinners at the discretion of the Pope. Pope even to the dead in purgatory. Now, I've, I've read my Bible many times and I have found no evidence of a place, uh, an intermediate intermediary place between life and hell called purgatory. It's not there. And that whole thing, that whole campaign was epitomized by a priest by the name of Tetzel who came to Germany and virtually sold salvation. And the, the tradition is that he would say, quote, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now that was appealing to these superstitious-minded people of that time. Imagine if I can help my dead ancestor, my dead mother or father or brother, you know, who was such a sinner, get out of hell by putting money in them. And none of that on the authority of the Scriptures. And unbelievable as it sounds today, it was possible because the people had been kept in ignorance of the Scriptures. Now, what was, what was behind all of that? Luther identified the source as, in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He called it Our Ancient Foe. Who is that? Satan. Satan. He says in his hymn, whose craft and power are great, the prince of darkness grim, But, he says, we tremble not for him. Remember, this was a Reformation hymn. I I remember as a Lutheran minister, we sang it every Reformation Sunday. It's in our own hymnal, by the way. We sing it because the Reformation is a part of our tradition, our history. Praise God. We tremble not for him. Luther says, and we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Powerful words. Now, let me ask you, is it an over-dramatization to say that it was a major spiritual crisis in 1517? I don't think so. It was a major, a major spiritual crisis and it, it constituted the corruption of God's truth concerning the basic human condition which the Bible calls sin and its resolution. By the way, there are even some Protestants who want to do away with God's law. They say that Calvary abolished the Ten Commandments. But you don't get that impression when you read Paul. When you read what Paul says about the law, he makes it clear that the human problem is not the law. The problem is the sin that the law reveals. That's the human problem. It has to do with the very essence and the nature of the gospel of salvation. John 3.16, you know, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. And Jesus said, To his people, yes sir, Jesus said to his people, to us, you are the light of the world. And he said, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others. Matthew 5, 14, not everybody understood the implications of that when he said it, but some people did. Now, remember we're talking about the times, the critical nature of what was happening and what was needed. Ecclesiastics 3, verse 1 says, for everything there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. And that time had come. God would act. And God would deal with that situation. And when you look back on all of that, it's obvious that the time to speak had come. Why? What was at stake? What was the basic fundamental issue? And I'm probably going to repeat this many times during these days because I want everybody that's here to get it. Because the fundamental issue is still the same today. The issue was God's truth, the Word of God, the Bible. You know, Adventists used to be referred to as the people of the book. I don't hear that anymore. Are we in danger of losing something precious, important, critical even? You know, remember we still have an enemy that Luther defined in his hymn. And what is the devil's primary tactic? Deception. And he will use any means, no matter how wonderful it might sound, to deceive us. The issue was God's truth. And if that light does not shine, utter darkness prevails. And God will not allow that. John chapter 1 verse 5 says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it because as long as that light shines the darkness cannot overcome it and God will see to it that it keeps on shining it had to happen and when I started working on this series I was overjoyed when I discovered this statement by Ellen White in her book, Great Controversy. Because you can imagine, as a former Lutheran, I was very enchanted by her chapters on the Reformation. And here I came across this. The light shines in the darkness, excuse me, at Wittenberg, Germany. A light was kindled whose rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth and which was to increase in brightness to the close of time. The Reformation is not over. It never was meant to be over. It's not finished. It was not a mistake. And I believe that God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church to continue the Reformation, to continue calling people to that light, the light of God's Word, His truth. You can imagine how I felt in the seminary library at Andrews University in 1970-71 when this kind of stuff dawned on me. Now, I have to tell you, I wouldn't listen to my wife. And I'll tell you why. I had to do it on my own. Because I knew, I knew, and it's been confirmed since more than once, I knew that people would say that Pastor Holmes only became a Seventh-day Adventist because his wife did. I had a lot of people to answer to. I had former church members, Lutheran people that I loved and served, family, relatives, friends. I had to know for myself. The reference there is uh, Great Controversy, page 126. Anyway, it was a time to speak in 1517. Who would do the speaking? Who would God choose? Many voices began to be heard, as we will see. But who did God choose to light the flame? And what would be the spark? What was the spark that caused us? Well, the spark was indulgence. Luther was the man that God chose. Was Luther perfect? No. Did he make mistakes? Yes. Could he have used different language sometimes? Yes. But as Ellen White recognizes, God used him mightily. And we need to praise God for that. So the time to speak had come. It happened on October 31, 1517. By that time, Luther had been appointed as a professor in the University of Wittenberg, in Wittenberg, Germany. And he was assigned first to teach the Psalms, the Book of Psalms, and then Next, it was Romans and Galatians. Luther had recognized by his intense study of Romans that the very gospel itself was being abused and distorted by the church. (coughs) I've often thought about that. Here he was, a simple monk, peasant, son of a farmer in the midst of all of this with a bible in his hands reading the sacred text praying thinking and so he prepared a a list of grievances and he listed them there were 95 of them it turned out and he went on that morning and he Fastened them to the church door in the city of Wittenberg. And that was customary in those days. If somebody wanted to debate a question or an issue, they would simply post, post it on the door of the church. People could read it and and discuss it. So that's why he did it. It was they, Historians later referred to it as the ninety five theses, but in Luther's mind, they were propositions intended for the purpose of calling for a debate. I don't think Luther got up some morning one morning and said, Well, I'm going to revolutionize everything, and you know he didn't have any intention of leaving the church; he was a devout churchman. His motive was to reform it by exalting the word of God. And that took guts on the part of that humble monk. That took an awful lot of courage, especially when you understand the power that the church had by that time. And By the way, today, among churches, there's more attention paid to Halloween than the Reformation. And so the spark was the practice of indulgences. And first of all, Luther questioned the very power of the Pope. Wow. That was something. If the Pope had the power, this is the way way Luther thought. If the Pope had the power to release souls from purgatory, why in the name of God's grace and mercy did he not do it? That was a troubling thought, wasn't it? If he had that kind of power, why didn't he do it for everybody? Didn't Jesus die for the the sins of the whole world, every single human being? And wasn't the Pope supposed to be a representative of Christ on earth? So Luther was confused. Why, Why didn't he do it? And number two, God's word declares that forgiveness and peace comes by grace. As a former Lutheran, I I used to love saying we're justified by faith. But that's not quite true. We're justified by grace. Through faith, we're justified by the grace of God which we receive through faith if you don't believe that you make faith into a work say i'm justified because i have faith sola scriptura sola gratia grace sola fide faith You don't need popes and priests and sacraments A person who does not have this kind of assurance is lost, even though the Pope might absolve that person a million times or anybody else. That was the fundamental issue. The power of the word opposed to the power of the papacy. Some folks are reluctant to say that today, but it's the truth. Luther had no idea what he had begun. On October 31, 1517, he didn't. He didn't understand that on that day, truly a light was kindled, that was to shine through through the whole earth. Luther died only about what 30 years later. After that, November 10 is the birthday of Luther. Born in 1483 in the town of Eisenleben. But in this ecumenical age of ours, not much attention is given to either of those events, his birth or what happened on October 31, 1517. Not much attention is given to those events that changed the course of history and the course of Christianity. Not even by Protestants today. I don't see any Protestants celebrating the Reformation. When anything is mentioned about it, the word commemoration is used, not celebration. In fact, attempts are made today by ecumenical zealots to reverse the course of Protestant history and actually undo the past 500 years, and rather than continue to shine the light that was lit that day in Wittenberg and that was intended to increase in brightness to the close of time, undo it instead. I was thrilled to read Alan White's statement because I believe and I have for a long time that the Reformation is not over and never was intended to be over. Why not? Because the issue is the same today. The authority of the word of God. God's people need to hear once again and reaffirm Luther's great ringing testimony when he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. My conscience is captive to the word of God. And today, historical revisionists even doubt that he said that. But there were many witnesses that wrote it down when they heard him. It's interesting that some folks want to revise history. In other words, rewrite it in terms of what should have happened or could have happened instead of what actually did happen. On that declaration of Luther, can you imagine him standing there in the midst of all of these secular and religious dignitaries? The emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was there. The pope's representative was there. And they called on him to recant everything that he had said and written under threat. But he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. On that great declaration has rested the Protestant faith. Ellen White says, Great Controversies 117, one man opposed to the mightiest powers on earth. One man had no weapons. He didn't come in there with a sword in his hand. He had no mighty army behind him. All he had was this. One man opposed to the mightiest powers of earth, both secular and ecclesiastical power. Almost three years later, after that, on June 15, 1520, Pope Leo X issued his condemnation of Luther. Luther. The title of it is in Latin, Exurge Domine, which translated means, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause, the Pope wrote. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. Arise, O Peter. Arise, O Paul. And Luther was given 60 days to submit to papal authority. Two months. And to recant, or he would be declared anathema, cursed, and excommunicated from the church. And in a letter to Elector Frederick of Saxony, the province where the University of Wittenberg was located, a secular authority, by the way, the Pope referred to Luther as a, quote, son of iniquity, and also as a scabby sheep. And the Pope ordered the secular ruler of Saxony, the elector of of Saxony, that, quote, if he, Luther, persists in his madness to take him captive. And that's one of the depressing things about the history of the Reformation. When you see the power that the church had over the state, The church would declare a person a heretic. But the state then would follow through on that, arrest that person, and in many cases, burn them at the the stake. And all of that is behind the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which is under attack today. The First Amendment reads, Congress shall pass no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You know, a lot of our young people are growing up today without any knowledge of our history as a nation and how important the Constitution is and that one amendment alone that guarantees religious liberty. So, summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was the major secular authority, to appear in the city of Worms, it's pronounced Worms, not Worms, Germany, on September 17, 1521, that simple monk, the son of a peasant miner, stood before the emperor and the representatives of the pope, and he stood all alone to answer for his faith. And with nothing to sustain him but the word of God, it was a divine moment in history. Over the years, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that moment. And I have to say that that is the spiritual heritage that my wife and I have brought into the Adventist church. That's why I'm an Adventist today. Because of the example of Luther. And if you don't think we're going to have to answer for our faith, you better think again. My wife and I are going to be interviewed today at 1.30 by 3ABN Radio. And one of the things we've agreed to say is how much we appreciate our Finnish-Lutheran heritage, a major part of which was lost over the last decades in subsequent Lutheran mergers. But our spiritual roots are in the revival awakening movements in Finland, which we still appreciate. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but my wife did. Her mother and father were devout Lutherans of the Finnish Lutheran tradition. And she has such precious memories of her parents. Her father was an underground iron ore miner for 40 years. He went to work in the dark. He worked in the dark. He came home in the dark. The only days he could see the sunshine was Sunday and Saturday. And she remembers his gnarled miner hands folded in prayer in the church, in the Lutheran church in Wakefield, where we're living now. We drive by it every day. It's not the same anymore. But as he, knelt and bowed his head in prayer with those gnarled hands folded, he couldn't even put them all together. They were like this. And she remembers her mother saying to her almost every Sunday, when the preacher got up in the pulpit, which was always up high, she said to my wife in Finnish, keep your eyes on the preacher's mouth. In Finnish, watch the people, the pastor's mouth. Because from that mouth was coming what? The Word of God. So we appreciate our tradition, our our Finnish Lutheran pietistic tradition. And lo and behold, as I began to read the spirit of prophecy, I found it. I found that same spirituality in the writings of Ellen White that we had appreciated. So I had no choice. I had no choice but to become an Adventist. It wasn't a matter of rejecting something. It was a matter of building on something. Now it's time to stop. Excuse me if I get all excited. But we need something to get excited about, don't we?